Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences and where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is the next in our In Their Own Words oral history series, in which we talk with scientists who have made great contributions to their fields, particularly in the biological sciences. Today's guest is Dr. Peter Raven, who is President Emeritus of the Missouri Botanical Garden, St. Louis. He's also past president of AIBS. And if you find what you hear today interesting, I'd urge you to check out Dr. Raven's forthcoming autobiography, Driven by Nature, which is jointly published by the Missouri Botanical Garden and the University of Chicago Press. Uh, and one of the perks of being the interviewer here is that I get to have an early look at some of these books, and I heartily recommend this one. He's a great storyteller. Anyway, I've gone ahead and placed a link in the show notes for more information about the book. But for right now, let's go to the discussion. Dr. Raven, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Okay, so our first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? Well, I, I got interested in the life sciences when I was about seven years old, and I uh, really decided on a career in them when, when I was in high school, but uh, didn't understand until I was really in college that there was such a thing as an academic career in them where one could go on and uh, have a job, be supported, working on the life sciences entirely, and that was a great revelation to me, and a and a huge pleasure to find out. What was the first thing that drew you in when you were seven? Uh, I read a book uh, that, that uh, while I was lying in bed recovering from the measles, strangely enough, called uh, that my mother brought me called uh, Six Feet, and it was a book about insects published in 1930 that um, described each one and with a kind of a poem and then some pictures and a little essay and I was so interested in what it had to say that I couldn't wait until I got better and could rush out into my backyard and see some of the things that were there and try to figure out what they were. That's fascinating. And you spoke a bit about not knowing that, that you could make a career of it in academia. What had been your vision before that? Well, uh, when I was in high school, I thought that what I would probably do was um, uh, teach high school in life sciences or something like that, and then uh, and pursue the things I was interested in, collecting insects or collecting plants as a kind of a hobby. And what caused the, you know, kind of awakening to the possibility of, you know, a career in, in the academy and, and doing that sort of research and work? Well, when I was an undergraduate in college, I came to understand that in graduate school, I could be supported with fellowships and things and uh, conduct my studies and uh, get trained and then uh, as I would get trained at that level get a PhD degree that I would be able to get a higher level job one teaching in a university or well primarily I was thinking of one teaching in a university at that time and I couldn't have afforded to go to uh, graduate school if I'd had to pay personally for being there but of course, it turned out that fellowships were abundant, and uh, it was uh, if you had the grades, it was relatively easy to get one, and so I did, and away I went, very happily. And and what were your interests like, you know, as through your undergraduate career? By the time I was in high school, I was largely involved with plants. I had moved away from collecting beetles and butterflies, and I was collecting plants. There was a 
comprehensive book on the plants of California uh, by a man named Willis Lynn Jepson, who incidentally was one of the founders of the Sierra Club, um, and which was called A Manual of the Flowering Plants of California. And the thing that fascinated me about plants was that the ranges were known and established and written out in that book, the distributions geographically. And so uh, on the one hand, I would know where to look for them, go out and try to find them, collect them, and get to know them. And on the other hand, I would also know when I found anything interesting, like one a little bit outside of its range or in a special place, or best of all, one that wasn't in the area at all or even known to science. And so that kind of a knowledge base made it all a sort of a gigantic game for me, which I love playing. I did that all through high school. I was fortunate enough in high school to start going to the Sierra Club base camp outings. 1950, when I was 14, was the first I went to. But for the next uh, six years, I went every year uh, to those outings, went to particular places in the Sierra Nevada, and collected plants. And uh, by doing so, helped to add to the then growing picture of where high elevation plants were found in the Sierra Nevada. And of course, giving myself a great sunburn as well, which led to a lot of actinides that had to be removed later in life, had to be removed later in life. <laughs> Sunscreen wasn't quite as common in 1950 as it is now. They didn't think about using it at all, really. The thing you were supposed to do was rush outside and get tanned. And it, if you have a pale Irish skin, uh, not so easy to do. In fact, impossible. <laughs> I would imagine that the dermatologists in our listenership are, are right now cringing. Uh, but that sounds like a, a very fruitful experience uh, on those early Sierra Nevada Club outings. Well, it was wonderful because uh, it enabled me to feel I was doing something really right. John Thomas Howell, the curator of the uh, botany at the California Academy of Sciences, the museum that nurtured my early interest through its student section, uh, John Thomas Howell, Tom, asked me to go on 1950 when I was 14 because he wouldn't be able to go that year and he himself was building up a picture of the plant distribution in the high Sierra Nevada and uh, of course that was a huge honor for a 14 year old and I did it with relish. What really made it incredible was that Ledyard Stebbins who was the leading plant evolutionist of the uh, 20th century was going to that same session that I was going to on the east side of the Sierra Nevada in the drainage of Bishop Creek uh, with his daughter. And uh, I actually got assigned to go up there on a ride with him. I didn't know what he, who he was at first, but I soon found out. And thus, at the age of 14, was to be able to get a friendship with that great man that lasted until his death in 1999. And do you chalk that up, you know, those kinds of opportunities up to serendipity, or was it that you were actively, you know, pursuing those relationships and making those acquaintanceships, you know, at that early age? Um, it felt like serendipity, but I, but I think that um, God helps those who help themselves is uh, is also a good uh, metaphor for what was going on. If you have a strong interest and you keep pursuing it, then you're likely to be able to find opportunities. And so, if we nurture strong interests in our own young people now, uh, and they pursue them actively, they're likely to find opportunities too. I think one goes with the other. 
if I hadn't been, obviously, if I hadn't been avidly interested in botany and in biology generally by that age, I wouldn't have run into any of those people. And if I had run into them, it wouldn't have meant anything. On the other hand, uh, who was there was surely a matter of serendipity. That makes sense. So it's a situation in which you, you know, pursue your interests and stay as near to them as you can. And eventually you find yourself in the right place at the right time. If you live in a, in a society that has a lot of variables in it, a lot of different things and a lot of different experiences uh, laid out for you. I mean, I was very fortunate. I was, um, in, um, I was the only child in a, in a family growing up in San Francisco and there were just lots of opportunities and lots of terrifically interesting things outside. And I suppose it doesn't hurt if one has the Sierra Nevada mountains uh, practically in one's backyard. <laughs> well, they offered a special stage for uh, a special pursuit during the time I was a teenager, which really uh, uh, sealed my fate, so to speak. It certainly sounds like. Um, changing gears a bit, what would you say has been the biggest surprise of your career? Well, it was a big surprise. I mean, going back to the beginning, it was a big surprise to know that I could afford to go to graduate school Uh Beyond that, of course, there were many surprises. Uh, winning the National Medal of Science, uh, being offered the uh, directorship of the Missouri Botanical Garden. Um, uh, just so many things opened up to me as great surprises. I think the uh, idea that we began to lay out before about pursuing something and then finding lots of opportunities related to it uh, leads you to surprises. I think my lifelong interest in botany, my pursuit of botany, uh, led me to meet uh, people all over the world, to travel all over the world, and to have a thoroughly satisfying and deeply interesting life. What was it like when you received that that award? Well, uh, it was going to the Oval Office in the White House and uh, uh, meeting President Clinton and uh, having him... Uh, uh, in effect, uh, congrat well, not in effect, having him congratulate me for it. And that that's really the highest award that a, an American can win in science. But, <clears throat> of course, like all awards, and I've won uh, uh, quite a few others, um, there's, always an, there's always an element of chance in it. And, again, it seems to go back to the same thing on serendipity, doesn't it? Um, getting elected to the National Academy of Sciences, getting elected in any Academy of Sciences, getting any kind of award, becoming president of the AIBS, uh, all those things uh, involve your being chosen somewhat by chance, somewhat by being in the right place at the right time. Um, uh, be, uh, be, uh, and not because you were the only possibility to win those things or to get those things. But uh, if you're there at the right time and you have the right background and you're working hard, uh, you, the, the dice may roll and you may well roll in your favor more often than not. If you're not there and you're not prepared and you're not uh, pushing hard, they won't. Absolutely. What would you say is the biggest difference between the way that science is conducted now uh, versus the way that it was earlier in your career? Well, when I was an undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley, um, 
we were taught that DNA was a minor constituent of cells of unknown function. The, uh, the acceptance, the understanding that DNA was the genetic material, uh, which just illuminated to a degree that we never would have thought possible all aspects of biology and the technical expertise that came along with it, the, the knowledge that was needed, the skills that were needed to use it properly, to understand it properly, tended to make science a group uh, industry or a group enterprise, so to speak, uh, with um, people working together, often in very large groups, to achieve a kind of an uh, end goal. Uh, Multi-authored papers, papers with sometimes even dozens of authors are common nowadays. Uh, When I was an undergraduate, even up to the time I was president of AIBS, they were relatively rare. You might have one or two colleagues working on a paper, but uh, uh, that was all. Ecology also as a science really came along during the course of my career when I started college in 1953, college was really a very minor and marginal sort of science. Uh, It had started in the late 20s and 30s, largely in England, but it grew and grew and finally became a great synthetic organizing discipline uh, about the time that I got my PhD and uh, began my professional career. And uh, that itself, ecology is such a by its nature, a very complicated science that involves all kinds, combining all kinds of insights and all kinds of knowledge about the environment and drawing conclusions about them. That too led to very multiple, very uh, uh, labs with a lot of people in them or a lot of colleagues working together on individual problems in order to be able to get to the root of things. Uh, Those are that's the biggest single difference between science then and science now. The, the, the basis of science, that of presenting hypotheses, seeing if they could be falsified or if they were substantiated, uh, was exactly the same. But the way of doing it, the way of arriving at those hypotheses had gotten much more complicated and gotten to be much more of a group effort along the way. And what's that difference like in a subjective sense? You know, more gratifying to do something, you know, all on one's own um, or with a relatively small group? Or do you find it equally gratifying to, you know, to work or oversee large groups of people, you know, conducting a broader effort? What is that like subjectively? Anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm a deeply rooted extrovert. And that means that I get my uh, happiness from communicating to other people. If you're working by yourself, the reason you're doing it is still so that you can communicate the results to other people, often through the medium of a journal or a speech or something like that. If you're working with others, you have the joy of working with others, communicating with them about what you're doing, and then getting at a, re- a result, which also provides a means for you all to communicate with other people. I. Um, enjoy. I, I thrive on communications with others. So in either case, that, that, that becomes the key to it and 
probably that probably in my mind that to me there isn't that much difference between writing a single paper communicating it to others uh, or uh, working a lot of others to to make a paper they're all ways of communicating they're all ways of finding out things and the joy of finding those things out is that there's somebody to tell the answer to yeah and you know and clearly communicating with the general public and communicating with media etc have, have been major parts of your career um, how do you find that experience was it difficult at first is it something you grow into or is it something that you've always felt you've had a facility for well, I was a, a, a pretty uh, halting um, speaker, uh, not, not, a, not an outgoing, easygoing speaker when I was a kid um, and in high school, for instance, but, um, and, but I began to give seminars and talks, of course, when I was in uh, graduate school. And then teaching at Stanford in the 1960s, of course, where I had to address very large audiences in general biology and courses like that that were team taught there could involve having a couple of hundred people in the room. And in the mid to late 60s, those people could have had balloons tied to their toes. They could be taking dope. They could be reading newspapers. Uh, dogs could be wandering in and out of the room and so forth. And with all of that going on, one becomes a, a good communicator or one dies. I think I had the ability to do it, but that's certainly the way it was annealed because of the need to communicate strongly and interestingly if anybody was gonna pay attention to you at all. Um, I should say that um, the idea of communicating about conservation um, and the need to build sustainability worldwide, the existential threat of our population growing beyond the ability of the earth to support it, um, that didn't really become clear until the late 60s and the 1970s when it became obvious to many of us that conservation was not a matter of saving the wolves or the polar bears alone or, or co conducting or arguing about the path of a single road. Conservation was communicating as widely as possible with people at all levels about the need to conserve the earth and to live in such a way that sustainability would be built globally. Uh, but by that time, I was used to communicating, and now um, I can communicate um, just as well to uh, all audiences. Do I get nervous before uh, speaking? Um, I get nervous and worked up when I'm preparing what I'm going to say. Once I know what I'm going to say, I can handle it extemporaneously well enough to put it across in the length of time offered to me uh, all right. But uh, organizing it, learning what I'm going to say, finding it out, doing research on it, seeing how it falls together into an outline, that's a, that's a difficult process, I think, for anyone who does it properly because there's always much more material than you can put across in a given length of time, whatever the given length of time is. That's interesting. So it's not so much, it's not so much anxiety as you approach the podium. It's more so becoming energized and, and having to put forth a lot of effort as you're preparing you know, at home in your office, et cetera. Right. Depending on the audience, of course, you can still work up quite a degree of nervousness and just 
you have a very important audience and you're making a very critical speech, but in general, uh, that goes by the boards. And uh, once you start talking, the rhythm, the force of your talking takes over and you just keep going. So let's uh, talk a little bit about professional societies. Um, you know, anyone who's looked at your bio or Wikipedia entry sees that you're a member um, and have been a president of many. Um, what kind of role have they played in your career? And, you know, are there any standout events? Well, um, the professional society that probably played the greatest role in my career would have, would have been the uh, National Academy of Sciences. I was elected in uh, 1977 when I was 41 years old. I soon was got on the council, uh, was uh, elected to the council, and then I was elected home secretary, and I ran home secretary, which means running all the meetings and supervising the elections and so forth for 12 years. That uh, was a, a way of life during the time I was doing it, where I met many people, the most important scientists in the U.S. Many of them were active in the same way, and where I really relished all of the social and other actions and interpersonal interactions that went along with it. I worked with two very fine presidents of the AAAS, Frank Press, who died uh, recently, uh, and uh, Bruce Alberts, who's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, both of whom were a delight to work with, as were many, many other members of the staff. The other organization that I worked with uh, a great deal was the National Geographic Society, where I began uh, serving as a member of their Committee for Research and Exploration in 1981, ran through that eventually was appointed to the board of directors and stayed on that until uh, recently, until until last year, 1999. That in turn led to a lot of wonderful interactions with people on the Committee for Research and Exploration, great uh, annual excursions that we used to take to all parts of the world, England, I mean England, uh, India, Turkey, uh, Egypt, uh, Vietnam, many, many different places, and in the court of China, and in the course of that, I learned a great deal. And an organization like the AIBS was one that was very important to me when I was a graduate student and even an undergraduate student because of the annual meetings. The annual meetings of the AIBS, like the annual meetings of uh, similar societies, were a great place both to present material, get criticized or praised for what you presented, to learn how to do it better, and a great place to meet people. And those sorts of meetings are a great thing even now. When I was a graduate student, the IBS meetings were the most important annual event for us, and I used to love them when I was elected a president of the AIBS later, I did what I could to foster that. And of course, was fairly near the time when <clears throat> the concept of annual meetings was breaking down. And uh, so the character changed. But in the AIBS, I've been extremely pleased by the quality of uh, bioscience and the quality of the articles published in it. 
and I'm very excited about the um, current efforts to make it an even more effective forum for communicating to the general public. For me, for decades now, it's become the most important thing. It's become communicating to the general public. I feel that the situation we face in the United States and worldwide involving both accepting science as a, as a rational basis uh, for understanding the world and therefore something that underlie almost all of, all of our actions, uh, the possibility for doing that has been the most important thing to me now for a very long time. So I was delighted to fall into that at the time I was set in the Missouri Botanic Garden, a very substantial organization and then president of organizations like the uh, AIBS or the uh, AAAS and uh, have the ability and the opportunity and the podium to speak out to the general public. It's frustrating to see the way things are going now, but, um, and that people are not taking many of the things that they should seriously enough, but I've certainly done my part uh, as much as I thought I could at a given time to improve that situation, and I've greatly enjoyed the opportunities to do that, that being presidents of organizations and active in their uh, governance has given me. Uh, do you see that as, as a changing role for professional societies in that it's, you know, uh, more becoming more of an outward looking program or set of objectives you're reaching out to the general public more so than used to be the case rather than, you know, uh, building the community internally. Um, how has that changed over the years? Well, I think it's always been a, a place where professionals could come together and work with one another to publish articles, to hold meetings, to do other things. And I think it's always been an, an outreach kind of society through its publications and through its general efforts. It's always been a way of fostering understanding of science and, uh, building science into our daily life. And I think now what's going on is is simply a matter of probably focusing those efforts and uh, pushing them even harder when science is so often tending to be neglected. Uh, and when sort of to our surprise, uh, people's doubt in science is often based on what political or social goals they want to achieve and then just trying to brush science out of the way rather than by looking at science for what it is, which never mandates what you need to do. For example, science doesn't say you, you shouldn't uh, jump off a five-story building, or you should. It simply tells you what will probably happen if you do. And people should take it in that sense. And I think organizations like the IBS have always been working to get people to take it in that sense and to spread the word. That's interesting. So it's a, it's a role that the scientific society can take up that the individual researcher might not have as much access to as a scientist purely. Well, absolutely. Um, it's, the, it's the societies that pull people together and that attract attention and have publications. An individual researcher without a kind of a uh, backbone, a, a skeleton around which to build or a, or a basis from which to reach out, a base from which to reach out would never be able to accomplish as much. It wouldn't, simply wouldn't mean anything. Now, of course, in that sense, uh, universities can operate in the same way as scientific societies, so to speak, bringing people together and all, but by definition, they're 
less diverse and and uh, but they do they do perform a very similar role in bringing people face to face with important scientific information but universities of course now that they've developed into much more of outreach organizations than they were uh, when I was starting my career in the 1960s and 70s it was almost considered negative uh, to reach out to the public if you were in a university science was considered to be a kind of a cloistered activity where one would draw one's conclusions but not be not not pull push them out as much just let people kind of dig in and find them if they would nowadays it's considered a plus to uh to reach out to people with your conclusions and with your ideas about what they might mean in the 1960s it was almost considered a negative how has that you know kind of role been for you um you know obviously not being in, in solely a, a traditional academic placement at, you know at the at the missouri botanical garden did that public facing role you know kind of reach you earlier and, and more strongly perhaps than it, it may have for those who were um you know cloistered in academia as it were oh probably i mean if you're head of a not-for-profit organization it's more analogous to being the president of a university in terms of your standing in the community. You're expected to have views on things. Now, I was very careful during the uh, 39 years I was head of the garden not to get too much into direct politics in my public outreach, but I never hesitated to reach out on questions like evolution, uh, what was happening to the environment, what we ought to do about it, what that said we ought to do about it uh, all that time. And yes, it does give you a kind of a, being the head of it gives you a kind of a standing or almost a necessity of doing that. You uh, have, a, of course, a serious obligation to raise funds for any organization that you're the, any independent organization that you're the head of that has a program needs funds and that makes you a public figure fairly automatically if you're going to be successful. But, um, well, enough said. Understood. Um, let's talk about a few, you know, kind of uh, perhaps superlative days uh, from your career or, or events or periods. You know, let's, let's not define it too strictly here. But um, what would you say was your most challenging day on the job? Most challenges, most challenge. The most serious challenge I met at the garden, there's two different ways of looking at the idea of challenge. The most serious challenge I met was when we were about to build the um, entrance building, which we call the Ridgeway Center at the garden. We'd been conducting a capital fund drive and raising money for it, but that was in 1979-80, and of course, in the last year of President uh, Carter's administration, we were running an uh, inflation rate of about 15% with an inflation rate of, of um, uh, buildings, architecture, uh, of about 18%. And so we came to a point where some of the trustees said, well, maybe we ought to just give back the money. We really can't afford to build the building and others said we ought to look at the uh, plan of the building and see how we can find a way to go forward. 
and we ha actually had a meeting to talk about that, and that was a huge challenge. Uh, and uh, those who thought we ought to go forward uh, won the day, and we did go forward. We had to cut the building back in some ways, but uh, we were able to go forward within the limits of what the money that it was possible to raise uh, at that time. Now, another kind of a challenge was winning tax support for the garden for the first time. The garden, uh, founded in 1859, the Missouri Botanical Garden is the oldest botanical garden in the United States that's been operating continuously. The U.S. National Botanical Garden at the foot of Capitol Hill is older, but it's been closed for periods during its history. At any rate, the garden is a private organization governed by a board of trustees who are elect, elect their successors have a few ex officio members and never received private support. So one of the problems that we solved while I was head of the garden, the most important problem and the most important success ultimately was how to win tax support for the Missouri Botanic Garden, a private organization when the constitution of the state of Missouri um, uh, clearly prohibits giving public monies to private entities and uh, it turned out uh, the way we constructed it was to uh, create a public entity from the St. Louis City and St. Louis County, which are separate entities here, uh, a body, um, a district commission that would receive the tax funds and then pass them to the garden uh, contingent on satisfactory submission of budgets and goals and objectives and so forth. Um, However, to get that, we had to both work with the state legislature to get permission to hold the election, and that involved two years of very heavy politicking, and then we had to win separate elections, both in the city, which is, I said, a, a separate entity from the county, and in the county to approve a tax rate for us. The Zoo Museum District, which in St. Louis supports the Art Museum, the Zoo, the History Museum, and the uh, Museum of Science, is a rather unique organization in, um, is a unique organization in combining two political entities, and it's based on a fixed proportion, a mill tax on property taxes, not subject to annual review, so it's quite an amazingly important uh, support. When I got to the garden, the um, budget was about uh, uh, one and a half million dollars. And when I left the garden 39 years later, it was about um, 40 million, of which about 12 million came from tax. So you could see what difference that made. Even uh, giving uh, giving recognition to the role of inflation and all of that, it was it grew by about five times, and that in turn allowed us to have many more exhibits, many more educational programs uh, to uh, reach all over the world with our scientific programs and to have a steady base to carry on with. So in one way, um, achieving that tax support was the biggest problem I faced and then turned out to be what I consider to be the most important thing that we were able to accomplish during that time. 
Is there anything that prepares you for that sort of experience? You know, it it's it doesn't sound like it's the typical purview of, you know, um, somebody who's gone off and, and gotten a PhD in a scientific <laughs> field. This sounds like economics, politics, you know, business, obviously. It's where you can ride. He laughed. He laughed hysterically at that point. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I uh, I came here from Stanford, I was on the faculty of biological sciences at Stanford University for nine years. It was a wonderful experience with close colleagues, Paul Ehrlich, Richard Holm, uh, and others, uh, really introducing me to biology as an integrated science of great importance for the world. But I did not supervise a single person. Uh, so I obviously had no idea what to do. It turned out, and I have to thank the trustees for having thought that I somehow might be able to manage it. I don't know what they were thinking about, but I came here and there were something like 80 people on the staff and um, there were these departments and I knew that I couldn't, I knew instinctively that I couldn't uh, direct them all. There was no hope of micromanaging even at that size. There were about 500 people on the staff when I left. Um, there was no way that I could micromanage what they were doing. So I had to really do, well, what, for example, Steve Jobs has said, hire good people and then let them do their job and learn from them and reward them for doing a good job and continually show your confidence in them. It just so happened that although I'm a kind of a, although as you've seen in this interview, I'm a very much of an uh, extrovert and do a lot of talking. Uh, on the other hand, it turned out that I was able to trust people to hire them because of their skills and to let them make the decisions in their individual fields. Uh, I had nothing to prepare me for that. It was just the very good fortune of the garden, I must say in retrospect, now that I'm retired, that I somehow had that in me. Uh, no, nothing, nothing prepared me. It was ridiculous in that sense to assume that I would be able to do it. But simply a matter of uh, you know, getting into the position, hiring the right people, delegating responsibility. And it sounds like also a lot of on-the-job training. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I had no assistant, no kind of operating officer in the first year or so. During that time, uh, I had to look at things very closely. Uh, and in doing so, I learned about all the operational parts of the garden. And uh, that was invaluable in a way. If I'd had a <clears throat> a COO equivalent who had gone on from before I was director until after, um, I, I wouldn't have had that chance to kind of find out what was going on. But I also have that I, I really like people. Uh, when I meet people for the first time, I always feel good about them. They have to work very hard to get me feel badly about them. And since I like them, I tend to trust them. And that's just something that's in there. Um, you could go, you could psychoanalyze why that's in there, but it's in there, and it's a very good quality to have for directing a whole lot of people in diverse jobs because they can feel it, and they know 
they have your support and they if people know they have somebody's support they're going to work harder and do their very best on the average yeah it sounds like certainly a valuable trait to have uh you know as one works through some of those more difficult challenges but moving on from the challenges what you know event or finding or, or anything from your career would you most like to see long remembered into the future if you were able to pick one? Oh, that um that I that I led the garden during a period in which it grew into a world power and uh, a world uh, contributor, a global contributor to understanding plants all over the world and conserving them. It was a strong institution when I came, but its outreach was far more limited. And uh, as a world uh, entity, uh, a globally effective entity in learning about the kinds of plants and in conserving them, it really has played an important role. And I've always emphasized in um, fostering that program empowering the nations where we were active, involving them completely, training them. And uh, so we've actually established, made possible the establishment of strong research programs in uh, botany in a number of countries, in our, in our area in botany, in a number of countries in Latin America, in Madagascar, uh, established very wonderful connections with China, which turned out to be very fruitful in producing a modern flora of China. And uh, I would like that global reach and that global service and that understanding between people and between nations with the realization that we're not all competing with one another, but that we're all pursuing a common goal and ought to be nurturing and encouraging one another uh, I'd like to see that going on uh, indefinitely. That kind of brings me to a question about, you know, the nature of an effort that goes by over the period of, you know, four decades. Um, how much of if that vision is established, you know, when you're first starting out? How much of it forms over time? Um, you know, how much of it is is built up over the years, you know, do you have a, an idea of what you wanted to do, or did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with the garden when you first took on the role um, and then it developed, or is this something that, you know, you're, you, you deal with the pieces as they're, you know, as, as they come to you and uh, you know, you see what you've created over the, over the decades, you kind of, how does that develop? Related very much to a, a story that was told about Lincoln. It said, did he know exactly where he wanted to go with respect to policies? And he said, in the Mississippi River, uh, and the river is out where I come from in the West, namely around here, um, we have a system of navigation called point by point. We uh, look down the river and see a stump or something, and we sail for that. And then when we get near it, we find another point to sail for. That's very much the way I operate, for sure. I mean, that really rang a bell with me. I uh, hired people for research program <coughs> globally, <coughs> excuse me, very opportunistically. As I did so, more opportunities presented themselves, and I went on. So it was very much a matter of having a general goal 
which was simply to do good in individual countries or individual places or individual research programs and make a contribution. And the fact that it built together by itself, uh, not by itself, it built together sort of automatically into a bigger network of programs was really a matter of accumulation, not a matter of original design. It certainly seems like a winning strategy. Um, I guess looking back again, if you were entering graduate school today, is there anything that you would do or perhaps study differently uh, than you did the first time around? If I were uh, entering graduate school today, knowing what I know, I would uh, take a major that combined uh, knowledge in the life science with politics, with economics, or something like that, uh, because of the enormous need for affecting the way the world goes and the enormous need for information in a whole array of areas that fit together to allow us to make the right choices. In other words, I would have enabled an outward-looking public career from the very beginning and done that in part by my choices in graduate school. So much greater focus perhaps on you know public policy and things like that. Yeah, or economics or sociology. Is, would that be for the purposes of doing public outreach and trying to influence people to you know take science as seriously as, as many lay people perhaps don't sometimes? Well, even more strongly than that, it would be to enable people not to destroy civilization by overcoming it with overconsumption and flooding it with our desires and our traditional outmoded economic theories, uh, which I think are going to change the world for the worse in the future unless we get very strong in influencing them and changing them. For example, uh, Adam Smith's brand of economics and the brand of economics practiced by most people in the world today sees natural productivity like every other commodity as something that gets to be more and more the more we use it the more we need it for our operations and guess what it doesn't it's got a real limit the limit is known as the planet earth and helping people to understand that and to act on that when there's no room for rivalry between nations anymore except for friendly and cooperative rivalry there's no room for uh, eight people in the world to have as much money as the 3.6 billion poorest people in the world. And there's no way that that can lead to sustainability or the continuation of our civilization unless we get very serious about it, look at the lessons of the past and forge better routes into the future. So I would try to get a background that would let me do that effectively. You know, what do you think are the major threats? You know, obviously uh, we're recording this and I hope it won't soon be forgotten, but in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, we have climate change, of course. What are the what are the, the major threats that you see on the horizon for us? Well, I can start by pointing out that a very fine uh, organization called the Global Footprint Network, uh, www.footprintnetwork.org, has calculated that in 1970, human beings were consuming about 70% um, of the total global potentially sustainable productivity. This is entirely based on UN statistics. And now we're consuming about 175%. Uh, 
which leads them to have named uh, um, Earth Overshoot Day, which in um, the last few years has been around August 1st. In 2000, 2020, it'll be around August 20th because of the pandemic. But the point is we're consuming much more of the world's sustainable productivity than exists. Uh, at the same time, a country like the United States or the countries of Western Europe, if everybody in the world were using up the natural productivity at the rate we are, uh, it would take five planet Earths to support us sustainably. And that means that we live in a world where we have too many people, too much consumption, and too much greed. Uh, we can't make America great again, except in the context of nations all over the world, most of which are exceedingly poor, and many of which are dropping below the limit uh, at which they can actually improve their prosperity and just have no recourse except to sell things to other countries. Um, and that's a non-sustainable situation. It's a situation that is leading to climate change. It's a situation which will destroy much of our agriculture in the, in the fairly near future. It's leading to widespread uh, emigration, displaced people getting greater with every passing year. Uh, and it's, it's simply leading to a situation in which the things we value, our love for one another, the institutions that we built, poetry, great music, science, all of our enterprises are destined to fail unless we understand what's happening to our single planetary home, get busy and start doing something about it in a spirit of conciliation and love for one another. That's a very powerful message, and you know it, it seems particularly apt right now. Um, I'm wondering, how, you know, how has that view evolved over the years? You know, is um, has have things become more urgent uh, in your mind, or you know, uh, I, you know, I, I know at the end of the the '60s and the early '70s, there was widespread concern that you know we were going to very rapidly outstrip the Earth's ability to produce food for the population. Do you feel more pessimistic now or, or less so? Yes, well, we were right in the late 60s, weren't we? <laughs> well, it's worse now because there are more of us. Uh, in uh, When I was born, there were fewer than one-third of the people that there are now. Um, and obviously that was putting a far less of a strain on the Earth than it is now. And obviously uh, the pessimism of the 60s was extremely well warranted, and we've We've ripped along rapidly into a worse and worse situation. We like to put things like that out of our mind while we preoccupy ourselves with things like driving our daughters to soccer practice and uh, just simply getting by. And yet, collectively, the more we do that, the worse the future looks. Sub-Saharan Africa has uh, 1.1 billion people right now. In 30 years, in 2050, it'll have 2.2 billion people. And by the end of the century, it's estimated to have 4.4 billion people, which will be uh, going on half the people in the world. And uh, to suppose that when they, I mean, to, to make a statement like 
sub-Saharan Africa is doing very well because they're having a fertility dividend on a lot of children borders on the insane. It's so inappropriate and so non-operational. So of course things are getting worse. They're getting worse because they're getting worse. The same factors that prescient people began to see in the 50s and 60s have simply gone on, have not been taken care of properly, and are pressing on us now very hard, although it's hard to realize that when you're leading a good life in a very wealthy country like the United States, living far above our own ability to produce. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I'm wondering now, um, you know, for those scientists who are just now entering the field or preparing to enter the field, uh, they certainly have their work cut out for them, both in terms of the science, obviously, but also in terms of the advocacy and the public outreach and so on. Uh, what advice do you have uh, for them? You know, those who are either envisioning a career in science or uh, envisioning or are already in a career in science and, you know, uh, planning next steps. What kinds of things should they be thinking about as we address these problems? One hopes. When you're a scientist, the most important thing you can do is build a solid framework of information based on tested hypotheses in your own area. We need that framework to inform our actions. We need solid work, improved understanding for any kind of action that we might take. Once we've done that, scientists and indeed all involved citizens, all concerned citizens, should do their best through media like the Global Footprint Network and so forth, understand what's really going on in the world, to try to act on it, to try to act on it personally in terms of consumption and other parameters, and to act on it in terms of the people that we elect and the international choices that we make. In that respect, scientists are no different from any other educated person in the world. We need to use our specific education as well as we can, and we need to then apply our knowledge of the earth based on our education in a very solid way to the common decisions that we make. And that sounds like excellent advice and also a good note on which to leave the conversation. Dr. Raven, thank you very much for joining me today. You are so welcome. Appreciate your inviting me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.